And thank you to you all who are here tuning in tonight. It is truly an honor to be here with you tonight. Now, who here has heard of Paul Revere? All right, everybody raise your hand and I'll raise mine even higher because I grew up in Boston and I probably heard more about Paul Revere than any of you all put together. Now, who here has heard of Susanna Bowling? Well, I can't raise my hand either. I had never heard of Susanna Bowling until a descendant of hers told me her story and I was absolutely blown away. Now, um, her story began in May, late May, 1781. And, see. In late May, 1781, it was almost five years after the Declaration of Independence, and we had been fighting the strongest military power in the world for this entire time. And basically, we were hanging on by like what I like to say a French thread because the French were supporting everything in 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 the entire war and if it wasn't for the French we would have had we would have lost long long before so and the real reason that the French were supporting us was because of General Lafayette of France who um, was a very young man very wealthy um, part of the French royalty and when he heard about the American cause he fell in love with liberty and he was very idealistic and very romantic and he loved the idea of liberty and he um, immediately asked Louis XVI if he could come over and, and help out and Louis XVI in no uncertain terms said Heck no. Um, I'm sure he said it with a very lovely French accent though. But um, so uh, when Louis XVI said no, that did not stop our, our friend General Lafayette. He commissioned a boat um, since he was one of the wealthiest men in Europe. He of course named it La Victoire, French for victory. And he um, gave a fake name when he, boarded the, when he boarded his ship and he left his pregnant wife behind and um, sailed for America and uh, left his pregnant wife behind. So um, he came over and I'm sure people were thinking, oh, this is some, some French pretty boy and General Washington was saying, oh, we gotta be nice to him because we want France to help us. Well, Immediately, he proved himself. He was wounded in the Battle of Brandywine. He was willing to pitch in and do absolutely anything. He was incredible. And he really was a rock star before we had rock stars. And um, everybody loved him. He really was just this um, rallying person for America, he and General Washington. And General Washington was, you know, called him like his adopted son. So, um, so General Lafayette, um, let's see, um, back in, in May 1781, Lafayette had just come back from France. He had gone over and talked to Louis XVI to get more support, more ships that he had headed for Chesapeake Bay, and he was, um, had come back, and, you know, he loved to be part of the action and, and um, right in the thick of things, and he was always talking about how his ancestors fought in the Crusades, and they fought for Joan of Arc, and when he came back, 
he was sent to Virginia, which was very sleepy during the American Revolution. Really, there had been no activity there whatsoever. So I can only imagine that General Lafayette was thinking, I went over, I got all these ships on their way here, I did all this, and I get sent to Virginia where there's absolutely nothing happening. So he was sent trying to capture General Benedict Arnold. Um, so there, there is um, General Lafayette doing his duty, um, trying to capture Benedict Arnold, who's running rampant around Virginia, and um, and um, trying to make the best of it. Let's see. Now, meanwhile, back on the plantation, Susanna Bowling was 16 years old. She lived in a um, place called City Point, Virginia, which is now part of Hopewell. And she lived there on her family's plantation with her mother and the enslaved people who worked there. And her three brothers had been off fighting in the war for the past five years. So I can only imagine that she was bored that of doing all these tedious chores and that she wasn't part of the action and, and, um, and all of that, that just feeling very left out because she was a girl. Well, her family was very wealthy. They were one of the wealthiest families in the whole um, this Petersburg region. And their family dated all the way back to the um, back to the first families of Virginia. They're in Virginia. They're called the FFV. So she was part of the FFV, and they basically owned really everything in in the whole Petersburg um, City Point area. And um, her brothers were down in North Carolina. They were fighting in the battle. They were there had just been a horrible bloody battle called the Battle of Guilford Courthouse down in North Carolina. And the casualties on both sides were enormous, but actually the British had much higher casualties than the Americans. And it was General Cornwallis who basically didn't care how many casualties he suffered because he just wanted to be able to say that he won the battle. So, um, the, so it was just horrendous and all of these reports were still coming in of casualty reports and um, I can imagine that Susanna and her mother were just on the edge of their seat wondering if their, one of their, um, Susanna's brothers was going to be on the next list. Um, so at this point, the American Revolution, um, at this point in the American Revolution, there was, the uh, British forces had divided. General Clinton was the Supreme Commander and he was in Manhattan, a very close to Francis Tavern, I'm sure. And um, General Cornwallis was working his way up from the south. He had come up through Georgia and was working his way north. And General Cornwallis was um, not very happy that he was um, second in command. He thought he should be in charge. So there was definitely some, a lot of friction between him and General Clinton. So there we are, late May, 1781, and Susanna Bowling is probably doing her tedious chores around the house, and all of a sudden, an entire enemy army comes marching down her lane. All, you know, hundreds and hundreds, even a thousand redcoats coming down, the, coming down their, her lane to quarter there overnight. Now, this must have been unbelievably shocking because Benedict Arnold had just done a raid of Petersburg. He had burned all the uh, tobacco warehouses, and um, it basically done the damage that he wanted to do. So they must have been baffled of why, why, is, why is he coming back? And you know, why, why are they wanting to quarter here? And why didn't we get word that they were coming? So um, 
what happened, um, you know, they assumed that it was it, it Benedict Arnold again, but it actually was General Cornwallis, and which is much worse because he was vicious. He was known to come into these houses and basically strip them bare and burn them down and with, you know, just very, very much ruthless. So this would be someone's worst nightmare to see General Cornwallis coming out of the blue with a thousand soldiers and to quarter there overnight. Because basically, you know, with the quartering, you were at their mercy. You, they could do whatever they wanted with anything they wanted that you owned. And uh, they would, you know, eat all of your chickens and pigs and they would, you know, take all of your finery. They would, um, and strip the, you know, the wheat fields bare, you name it. And, um, and then if, if maybe if they didn't like your cooking, they might burn your house down on their way out. So it was just a total nightmare um, for Susanna and her mother. And when you think about how scary it must have been that they had no one there to protect them and they are completely at the mercy of this enemy army. So that night as she is serving dinner, she overhears his nefarious plan and she finds out why he has come up from Guilford Courthouse. So he basically had marched these soldiers nonstop, you know, for days and days and days. I mean, just that it must have taken them about a week of just nonstop marching. And because he had gotten intelligence, General Cornwallis had gotten intelligence that General Lafayette was at, located at the halfway house. Now the halfway house is has nothing to do with giving up alcohol. It was called the halfway house because it is halfway between Richmond and Petersburg. And basically all of our founding fathers have been to this halfway house because this was the only road that connected Richmond with Petersburg. So that was the only road that connected the North and the South and it was an old Indian trail. So, um, so people would, and even the, the trip from Richmond to Petersburg to give you an idea now is say a 45 minute drive. Now, back then it was a two day trip and people would have to stay there overnight. So anyway, just amazing that General Cornwallis was able to get this kind of intelligence to know exactly where he was. So basically Cornwallis had thought, he had already asked General Clinton, is it okay if I leave and go to Virginia? Because this is one of my favorite General Cornwallis uh, quotes is, he hated North Carolina because he hated the humidity and the heat and being a Brit, he wasn't used to it. So he said, I'd rather go to hell than go back to North Carolina. So he kept asking General Cornwallis um, or, or General Clinton, can I, you know, please leave? I want to get out of North Carolina. And Clinton kept saying, no, you've got to conquer North Carolina. But the, in North Carolina, the people were so feisty, especially the women of cutting these supply lines, all that, putting up such a fight that it, what they thought was going to be easy was very, very difficult. Um, so, um, so she overhears his plan that he is going to sneak out over, you know, your first thing in the morning, they were going to wake up, cross the river, and they were going to go to the halfway house and they were going to catch Lafayette by surprise. And then all of his sins of disregarding General Clinton would be forgiven because basically this would have ended the war. Louis the 16th would have been very happy to stop funding things, would have destroyed morale, and things were already so bleak as it was. So, you know, I assume that they talked about this right in front of her, thinking that she's a stupid, silly girl and didn't understand. And um, so that night, after they had burned, you know, 
taken all their fences down that had taken years to build and all of that um, and burned them in their bonfires and everything was quiet. She snuck out through the secret underground tunnel that was built in the house originally to protect from Indian attacks. And she snuck out there, canoed across the Appomattox River in the pitch dark by herself, grabbed a neighbor's horse and rode 10 miles in the dark alone and made her way to the halfway house. And as I started to learn more about the story, I realized, oh my gosh, not only did she have to make her way there, she had to make her way back before the sun came up because there really was, you know, she had to be back. Otherwise they were going to notice she was gone. And she certainly couldn't say she'd, you know, gone off on a, on a target run. And um, that, um, so, you know, she absolutely had to be back before the sun came up. So um, just an amazing story, totally mind boggling her, um, just her um, physical ability to do this trip overnight, but also her emotional stamina to do this is at the age of 16 is just incredible. So this is the story that I was told and I was a little skeptical because I thought, you know, why, why haven't I heard of this girl? This is just incredible. So I found this book in this called the best little stories from the American revolution. And, um, this is one of my favorite lines. It says, remember Susanna Bowling of Virginia? That's all right, hardly anyone does today. So I knew I was onto something big. And in my mind, I kind of felt like it was uncovering a hidden figure, like the, you know, the book and the movie of just uncover uncovering this story that really needed to be told. And um, so it was really exciting to stumble onto it. And I found another little um, local tome that told more about the story. It's called the Prince George Hopewell story. Um, so I knew that the story was true and I knew all the bare bones of it, but I needed to flush the story out. So, um, that's when it really got fun. Um, so I will admit to you, I know there's a lot of history geeks on here and I consider myself a history geek now, but at the time I really did not know that much about the American revolution. I basically started researching this story because I, thought this can't be true and in some ways I wanted to disprove it and that's once I stumbled onto it then um, I got really excited and um, I do a lot of school visits I love talking to the kids and getting the kids excited about history and um, I always say to them you know when your mother tells you to pick up your winter coat off the floor and um, hang it hang it on the you know the pegs on the wall well if there weren't any pegs wouldn't it just fall to the ground so for me, I felt like I didn't really have any pegs on the wall. I really didn't know that much, to be totally honest with you. So I started reading a lot of children's books. And I'm, even when I started writing, I used even paper dolls to describe how the people dressed. And um, it was actually really, really fascinating and, and kind of built from there. Um, and um, as I moved along, I um, got more, you know, branched out into more and more, you know, different kind of reading. And before I knew it, I was getting Amazon packages every day of the week um, and getting, you know, these books that I never thought I'd be interested in called The Age of Homespun, Objects and Stories in the Creation of an American Myth. And another book called The Social History of American Knitting. And I was excited. So um, really was um, just so exciting to uncover all of this and, and realize that so much of history is stories about people and that everybody's got their quirks and our founding fathers are not perfect. And, you know, none of us are perfect. So, um, 
so, but it was, the more I learned, the more interesting it got and the more pegs I felt I had on the wall. I had more places to hang my, my hat and my mittens and my scarf. Um, the more that I learned, the more, and the more interesting it became. So anyway, I, I, I started to go to a lot of different reenactments. And this is actually a place called Battersea Plantation, which is included in my book. And this is a scene um, from the um the battle that took place in petersburg so when i first started research researching this book about seven years ago i ended up calling a number and this nice woman met me at this house and let me in and there were literally like holes like eight feet wide and then she'd say oh you know watch out for the hole and i'm like don't worry i'm watching out the hole and now it's really amazing how it's these people that have dedicated so much it's now now they have open houses they have the opera come play in the yard in the you know the front lawn they have an oyster roast and um it's just a lovely place so this is battersea and um and um i really loved meeting all these reenactors and they are happy when they find someone who's also very interested in what they're doing so um you just never you know if you told me even 10 years ago that I'd be this traipsing around central Virginia looking for reenactments. I never would have believed you, but um, just such a, such a blast. And the best part is just these wonderful people that I met. Um, now, as I realized, you know, I knew the story was true and I had fleshed it out. There weren't a lot of primary resources, but I was able to do a lot of research about what was going on during that time period. And in Virginia, there is a man who's much better known, his name is Jack, Jack Jewett. And he did a midnight ride to warn um, Governor Thomas Jefferson that the British were coming to get him. As I started to play with the timeline, I realized that this actually took place right after Susanna, um, Susanna's midnight ride so when um when uh cornwallis got to the halfway house and realized that lafayette was gone that's when he sent colonel um tarleton off to charlottesville to try to capture um governor jefferson at monticello so um you may recognize tarleton here in the lower right hand corner um he was from the patriot and um oh my gosh what a what a hateful man. I mean, they called him Bloody Ban. And at the Battle of Yorktown, they actually, he had to stay in his tent because they were afraid that the American soldiers were just gonna tear him apart. Um, so, oh my gosh, just absolutely ruthless. So it was really fun. This was actually a reenactment at Monticello of a charlatan coming and Jack Jewett making his ride. And, and it, it's just a hilarious story. Like Jack Jewett was passed out in front of, uh, a tavern and the cuckoo tavern and then he overheard um, these British soldiers talking and then he rode 40 miles and you know had whiplash you know cuts all over his face and then even at Monticello their reenactment was Jefferson like tottering around like would you like a glass of Madeira and just totally taking his time and um, the more books I read the more books I wanted to read because I found that with each book there was at least one little nugget that another book didn't have. So it was just hilarious. Um, in one book, I found this little nugget that, that, you know, Jefferson was just kind of, you know, dithering around, packing up, and he looked out the window and he saw Tarleton. He ended up going out the side door and he ended up hiding in the hollow of a tree on what Carter's Mountain, which is now, nowadays around here, that's where everybody takes 
their kids to go apple picking. So it's just hilarious to think of Thomas Jefferson hiding in the hollow of this tree at, at Carter's Mountain. So, in, you know, those are the stories that I just love that really um, bring everything to life. Um, so what is amazing about Susanna is for the people who do know her story in the Petersburg area, she is called the girl who won the, um, won the Revolutionary War. And that is because when she made her midnight ride and, and then, um, then Tarleton made his ride to Charlottesville, um, Cornwallis was, was basically, they were exhausted after this Battle of Guilford Courthouse and this huge long march. So Lafayette would play cat and mouse with him and he would kind of, you know, um, he had trained with Indians when he was, um, or Native Americans, I should say, um, uh, earlier on in the war. So he knew all these tactics. So they, he said, we're not strong enough to get beat. So he knew he couldn't really engage in a full on battle. So they would kind of just, um, you know, take some pot shots at them from the woods and then they would dive back in the woods. And, um, and meanwhile, you know, the British are marching two by two and just total targets. So anyway, after Susanna's warning and um, Lafayette played cat and mouse with Cornwallis, that's when Corn uh, Lafayette trapped him in Yorktown in August. So if Susanna had not done her midnight ride and Lafayette had been captured, the Battle of Yorktown never would have happened. It was all Lafayette's, it was his complete mastermind. He's the one that brought the ships in. Um, George Washington was very consumed with, he wanted to retake New York. And finally, Lafayette said to him, look, you know, the ships are coming here. You need to come down here. And then they marched, you know, they set up a, they left a whole basically tent city set up to fake out the British and marched all the way um, from New York, all the way down to Yorktown. So just an incredible story and um, amazing what our role that, that um, Susanna played in it. Now, I kept geeking out some more. Here's some more uh, reenactments. This is a Lafayette interpreter um, who was amazing. And this is at Patrick Henry's, um, the Patrick Henry Courthouse up in Hanover, where when Patrick Henry was a young lawyer, where he made all of his speeches. And over here, um, I'm here with General Washington at the um, St. John's Church in Richmond, the, with the scene of the uh, Give Me Liberty, Give Me Death speech. Now, um, the Bowling family, as I mentioned before, very wealthy, um, very aristocratic, dating all the way back to Jamestown. Well, um, they also had another um, feather in their cap that they are related to Pocahontas. So um, it's funny when you meet people who are Bowlings, they all say that they're a red Bowling and it's not PC, but that means that they are from the line that contains Pocahontas. And, um, then the other line is um, called the, they're called the white bowlings. So there's even a bowling joke that there's um, the red bowlings and there's the white bowlings and then there's the blue bowlings who are sad they're not from the other two lines. Um, but it's funny how people really, everybody thinks that everyone wants to be a red bowling. And then, um, and I was even told that Susanna was a red bowling. And I had, you know, assumed that that was the case. But then when I actually looked at the genealogy, Susanna's a white bowling um, because Pocahontas had one son named Thomas and Thomas had one daughter named Jane. Jane married Colonel Robert Bowling. 
unfortunately, Jane passed away, as was very common those days, after having several children. And then um, Colonel Robert Bowling married Anne Stith. So Susanna is actually from that line. But then I like to say, well, Susanna, at least Pocahontas was like your great step great great grandmother. So um, somewhat of a connection there. So um, now this other picture on the right was really amazing. This is a school visit I did right before the pandemic struck and I got there and um, and the um, it was here in Richmond and they said, oh, there's this little girl. She's a bowl. Her last name is Bowling and she really wants to meet you. And um, just an absolutely adorable girl. And I just had this, you know, flash of, oh my gosh, I guess that she is must be descended from the enslaved people and that the bowling name has has you know come all the way down and she actually used to live on the street that same street where Susanna Bowling's house was so um just amazing and um I just another thing about history where I just really hadn't thought about that of that the enslaved people would have the bowling name and that would be passed down so it was it was neat how excited she was um now, the other thing that was neat is I met Bowling's doing these local talks um, because there's lots of Bowling's in the area and um, that the Bush family is actually related to the Bowling's. And um, Edith Wilson, who was Woodrow Wilson's second wife, she was, her maiden name was Bowling. So, um, and she is the one that apparently Woodrow Wilson had a stroke and was incapacitated and basically she was acting president and she'd say, oh, well, I'll go discuss this with him. And then she'd go off and she'd do what she thought he would do, but he was in no shape to be making any decisions. So it's kind of neat that these feisty bowling women um, continue on, on through the ages. Um, now, as I had the bare bones of the story, I needed to fill it out. And these are what I call like the black holes in history. And that was neat because um, I had, you know, quote unquote, a built in plot, but I needed to fill it out. I needed to um, really fill out the story and kind of like, why didn't, why didn't Susanna's name get in the history books? Why, why did, did her family not want her name out there? Did her, you know, it, it just all these unanswered questions. And I really enjoyed diving into finding out what the role of women were during the Revolutionary War. And I'll be honest with you, that's not something I really thought a whole lot about. We think of Valley Forge and we think of these men, you know, dealing with, you know, starvation and, you know, bloody feet and, you know, freezing in the winter and, and you know, not being paid and being away from their family. And, and their, their dedication and their service is in incredibly admirable but what was interesting to discover is that the women had equally significant equally significant contributions in their own way and that really in a lot of ways the women were the backbone of the american revolution that they were the ones at the very beginning with the power of the purse and they called themselves the the daughters of liberty there was the sons of liberty but there was the daughters of liberty and they they were extremely committed to the cause and they you know, these wealthy women that had these lovely gowns with all these fabric brought in from London, they refused to wear them and they made homespun. And it sounds, it, I mean, it looks just as icky as it sounds, homespun. So can you imagine having these lovely gowns hanging in your closet and you refuse to wear them because you're going to wear this lumpy brownish stuff and 
basically if you want a purple gown you got to start squishing some blueberries and blackberries together so um it's just amazing how dedicated they were and they they really put the elbow grease behind what their beliefs were so it was really just an honor to learn more about them and as i ask kids during the when i do school visits i say can you imagine if your mother gave up coffee for five years and they all go like crazy um but they did they gave up tea and they refused uh, they refused to drink it and they made their own tea it's called liberty tea usually basil leaves but you know, you know that's going from like Starbucks to Sanka. I mean, to go from British tea to Liberty tea of, you know, basil leaves from your garden. Well, yeah, it's probably not quite the same. So these women were so feisty. They were running these farms alone that they weren't trained to do. They were um, taking care of their children. They were, you know, a lot of them are, are maintaining an enslaved population with no protection whatsoever. And um, they were trying to keep the plantations running and they were actually trying to grow extra food so they could send food off with the army. And because the army, you know, they, the, the men off with the army were all starving, didn't have enough food. And then they were, you know, basically having to make their own thread. And so what was amazing was with the, um, with the thread is um, of them spinning these, um, you know, they would take their linen or flax or wool and they would tease it out and they would, you know, get on this and they'd pump this little treadle and they would make, they would make their own thread. And, but what was amazing is realizing once you make the thread, then they would have to put it on these massive looms to make a big piece of fabric. And then they would have to, you know, cut the fabric and sew it and make uniforms and send them off in addition to everything else they were doing. So it's just amazing. And um, I loved the nickname for them, the Petticoat Patriots. And what I also found, which was really amusing, is that a lot of these men admitted that there were, there were plenty of times when they were tempted to give up and they refused to give up because they were afraid to go home and tell their wives that they'd given up. <laughs> so these women were really feisty. I mean, like Abigail Adams, there she was with four little kids. She had British soldiers marching right by her house, and she still was letting people uh, train their soul. They were training American soldiers right on her property. I mean, she could hear and smell the smoke from, you know, from um, Bunker Hill, and um, just amazing, amazing the dedication. Um, so these women would get together and have these spinning bees and they would have, they even had like little songs. It was called like the Diddy Naughty song, but don't worry, I won't sing it for you. But, um, but uh, they would have these spinning bees and they would have contests to see who could make the most thread in different age groups. And then it would be published in their newsletter, which um, was really neat. Um, because back then it was just a front and back of a piece of paper because you know, it was so difficult to print it. So um, people would compete because they wanted to get their name in the newsletter. And um, they, um, in a lot of ways, this was their only social life was getting together for these spinning bees because otherwise they were so isolated on their individual farms and plantations trying to keep things going. Because the other realization that I had was how mind boggling it was that even if by some miracle we happened to win the American Revolution against the largest military power in the world. Well, if these women had just folded and um, and given up, these men would come back to these farms that 
would have gone fallow and basically everyone would have starved. So literally these women were keeping the home fires burning and um, giving, making sure that these, the men actually had somewhere to come back to at the end of the war. And um, one of the really neat things um, that I discovered is that in the Daughters of the American Revolution, their first symbol was the spinning wheel because it symbolized such patriotism for women. So um, really amazing. Because also with the spinning wheel, these women had, were, you know, the Americans would export all the raw fibers and they would send it to England and then they would manufacture the fabric. So these women were, they had not spun thread or done any of this in years. So they basically had to relearn the whole process. So um, just a, you know, an amazing testament to their um, dedication to the cause. Now, as I um, got out there, I kept thinking, how can I get Susanna's name out there? I want her name to be a household name as well. And because after all, she was not caught, but Paul Revere was caught. Um, so I put in a joint resolution through our state uh, delegate and um, putting her birthday of uh, December 5th as Susanna Bowling Day. So that actually went through, believe it or not, it was unanimous. Um, nothing's unanimous in Virginia these days, but it was unanimous by an I nay vote. And um, it, uh, last year was our first Susanna Bowling Day. And um, this is the delegate here on the left giving me a framed copy of the resolution. And um, here on the right is on Susanna Bowling Day. And this girl here, um, her name is Mallory, this is amazing um, girl who just graduated from high school. And for her Girl Scout Gold Award, she um, took on the Susanna Bowling Project and she uh, created um, curriculum for kids from kindergarten all the way through fifth grade of different crafts and different things and that actually corresponded to the Virginia standards of learning. So just amazing. And then of course she just, happened to translate it all into Spanish too. I mean, she just was incredible. So on Susanna Bowling Day, we went to several elementary schools in Hopewell. And um, we came in with her, uh, her friends from the band played, you know, the, um, did they all Yankee Doodle um, and marched around the gym. And she had the kids singing and dancing and singing all these Susanna Bowling songs. So just amazing. Um, and I've applied to also get her name added to a wall of honor for women on the Virginia, um, Virginia Capitol where they've just added women's statues. So the other project that is ongoing is I love, this is a, a historical landmark um, marker for during the Civil War when the halfway house was occupied by the Union Army. But what I would love to see is another marker for Susanna Bowling. So I'm um, raising funds for that. It'd be neat to have her, um, her mark made right there permanently. Um, let's see. Now, this is my next project. And what is amazing, this is Dolly Madison, um, known as the Queen of Hearts, the Presidentess, um, the Queen-elect, 
Um, she was just amazing, perhaps our most beloved first lady ever. And actually the term first lady was first coined to describe her in her eulogy by President Zachary Taylor. He said she had been the first lady of the land for 50 years. Um, just an amazing, amazing lady. And, um, and what I, when I do school visits, I ask kids, um, what do you think our superpower is? And they'll go crazy coming up with all these ideas. And I say, it's kindness. And she was incredibly, genuinely kind to everyone. And even if someone snubbed her, even if someone rebuffed her, she was always kind and she loved people and she was very gregarious. Her husband was the exact opposite. She was five foot eight, very voluptuous. She loved these low cut French dresses. She'd wear these elaborate turbans on her head. And he um, was this you know, people would say he's dour and forbidding, and someone called him an apple, a withered apple john, which is not a compliment, I'm sure. Um, so he was 17 years older than her, and at the time of the American Revolution, Susanna Bolin was 16, well, Dolly Madison was 13. So it's really kind of amazing when I realized that they were very much the same age, just obviously Dolly's time came much later. Um, so um, just an amazing woman of how she was able to bring people together. So when Dolly and James first came to Washington City, as it was called, because James was going to be the Secretary of State for President Thomas Jefferson, Washington City was really just this feeble little village. I mean, they called it the, this, what streets, uh, streets? streets with no houses and houses with no streets. So they had these, they had Pennsylvania Avenue laid out, they had New York Avenue laid out, but then there were no houses on it. There was nothing, there was nothing on, actually on those grand boulevards. So when Dolly and James first moved to Washington City, their address was called Six Houses, or yeah, Six Houses, because it was where there were six houses together. So just amazing, amazing. And when um, Abigail Adams first came to Washington, she got lost in the woods between Baltimore and Washington City, and their coachman had to get out with an ax and chop trees down because it was such wilderness. So, um, so when Dolly took over as, um, you know, when James became our fourth president, Dolly um, was absolutely overwhelmed because we had the president's house that was basically barely finished, but it had, it was a total mess. It, it, the, the, the yard around it was just a big mud pit. The house basically had no furniture and what it had was feeble because Thomas Jefferson had brought his, he had just brought his furniture up from Monticello. So then when he left, he took it back. And the, um, the Adams, um, John and Abigail Adams had only lived there for three months, so they hadn't done much. I mean, she used their grand salon ballroom as a uh, place to dry her laundry. So, um, you know, James said, oh, that's okay. Tom didn't, Tom was, you know, Thomas Jefferson was very shy, and he would just have small gatherings. And he said, well, Tom didn't, you know, he didn't have any big gatherings. We'll be fine. And uh, she said, oh, no, no, no. You get Speaker of the House, Henry Clay in here, some other congressmen. And she shamed them and basically said, you know, the British have Buckingham Palace and the French have Versailles and we have this place that looks like a pauper's house. So immediately they were, you know, cut her a check and she was decorating with Henry Latrobe. So Donnelly's vision was for unity. And at this, at that point in time, 
it was incredibly contentious, very similar to today, if not worse, because we were on the verge of the War of 1812. And the cause really was impressment that the British had been stealing our sailors on the high seas and forcing them to serve in the Royal Navy. I mean, we're talking like 5,000 sailors that were taken. And under, uh, you know, as Secretary of State, James Madison had done embargoes, he had done all sorts of things trying to um, get them to stop and they refused to. So it was inevitable, but it was very divided because the Federalists up in the New England states were shippers and the war was going to affect them much, much more drastically than the agrarian farmers like Jefferson and Madison from Virginia. So it was extremely contentious and this was the age of duels and people, you know, John Randolph of Virginia would bring his hunting dogs onto the floor of the hall of representatives and he would get them to snap at people. I mean, you know, basic intimidation 101. Um, so Dolly took this, these front rooms of the, of the president's house and decorated them. And she put an ad in the paper and she invited anyone and everyone to come to her drawing rooms on Wednesdays from three to five. Well, they were so popular, they usually ran till midnight. And she had lovely food, she served ice cream, she had the Madeira wine. Um, just, you know, she had a band, she had a piano. It was just a lovely event. And she said, if you treat people well, they will behave well. And she would um, totally work the crowd. She would remember everything that anyone ever told her. You know, how's your mother? I remember, you know, when I met you three years ago, she was feeling sickly, how is she doing? So she just was a master at putting people at ease. And she, this is hilarious. She would walk around, she had this, huge macaw parrot named Polly. So Polly and Dolly, and she would walk around with this parrot on her shoulder and um, she'd carry a copy of Don Quixote. So a lot of people were so tongue-tied seeing her that they, um, they, would, they would just freeze up. So she always thought that, you know, having the parrot would, you know, kind of be a good way to start conversation and all that. So these drawing rooms became so popular that everyone would squeeze into these three drawing rooms and then they became known as squeezes. So just absolutely hilarious. And she would, you know, James was this little tiny man, five foot four, hundred pounds soaking wet. And he would get swept up in the crowd because everyone wanted to see Dolly. They didn't care about seeing the president. So he'd get swept off in the corner and he didn't mind because he was a total introvert. And then she would wear these large turbans and on her head so that she would, um, so that he could see where she was if he needed to find her. But she would ask him, who would you like me to bring to you? And she would bring over, you know, two different opposing congressmen and escort them over there. And he'd say, I got more, I get more work, work done at these drawing rooms than I do, you know, all week in my study. So, um, absolutely hilarious. But these were just the hugest hit. And they were, they were open to everyone. So it was, all the politicians, all the bigwigs, but it was also the coachman. Everyone was welcome. And she wanted everyone to feel like this was their home and that everyone's an American and it belonged to everyone. And what was just wonderful about her is she was creating the sense of Americanness that America really needed and that really hadn't been developed. Um, Thomas Jefferson was a widower and um, not very, you know, didn't like big groups. So, and he didn't want to, appear pretentious. He didn't want to appear as if he was in any way 
monarchical. So he would answer the front, you know, the door of the White House wearing his slippers with holes in the toe. But Dolly was like, no, we need nice things. We need, um, we need beauty. We need this to create our national identity. So she really was uh, quite a visionary in, in so many ways because it, it, we had won the war, but this was only 30 years later. And it's kind of like, so we had this country, but we really didn't know what to do with it. And because it was, you know, we're the first ones to have a, a democratic republic. So, um, and of course she's known for the, uh, her heroics during the, battle, the burning of Washington City, where she literally was one of the very past last people to leave Washington City because she knew what it would symbolize. Like she understood symbolism in, to an amazing extent that she knew how bad it would look if she abandoned Washington City. So all these people had, you know, fled the city and their wagons and, and she waited, waited, waited to hear from uh, Jemmy, as she called him, up on the uh, front lines at the, in the Battle of Bladensburg in Maryland, um, not too far away. And um, she just refused to leave. The mayor of Washington, DC, of Washington City came by twice and begged her to leave. And she said, I'm going to wait for my husband. And, and then finally, um, Jemmy sent her a messenger from the battlefield and the man came down, you know, waving his hat, like, clear out, clear out. And um, so finally, she was ready to leave. But then she saw the portrait of uh, General George Washington, eight foot tall, you know, portrait with this really heavy frame, it was bolted to the wall. And she said, we're not leaving. We're, we can't leave without this. Because she knew what it meant. And it actually, what the irony is, this was actually a replica. This is called the Lansdowne portrait. It was painted by Gilbert Stewart, but the original was elsewhere. Um, so, but she knew what she knew what that symbolized. She knew what that meant. So they ended up cutting it out of the frame um, because they were so desperate to get out of there. So this here it is in the uh, east room of the White House, the um, the exact same picture. So just incredible, um, incredible woman. And she also left behind her own portrait. Her own Gilbert Stuart portrait was left behind and she left her entire wardrobe. So, um, cause so many people criticized her for being vain, but when it push came to shove, she left her entire wardrobe and basically skedaddled out of town. <laughs> Look at, you know, dressed as like a farm housewife to, you know, in case she was apprehended that she could try to, you know, hope that they didn't recognize her. So, so with this book, I'm doing up to my usual tricks of, um, meeting with different interpreters here. It's a um, James Madison interpreter. And here is um, a woman who's an interpreter for um, Suki, who was, who was Dolly's personal servant for years on end. So it's just fantastic meeting these people and um, just sharing our history nerdness together. And this is the, um, the cover of my, uh, my next book. So there is, you can see Polly on her shoulder, <laughs> the parrot in the uh, George Washington portrait in the background. Let's see. All right, so here we are. Um, does anybody have any questions? I saw a few questions going in the group chat, but I think I will ask the first question of what happens to Susanna after her, her ride? Um, that is a great question. Um, I wish I knew more. Um, basically all I really was able to find was, you know, when she, you know, when, when she died, she died in her mid fifties. She was married twice. 
she had two daughters, but I really don't know what happened after to her, particularly after the, the Revolutionary War. And mm -hmm. really there was no explanation. I don't know if there was a reason that her family did not want it to get out, that maybe it was considered unladylike what she did, right. uh, why it really didn't get into the history books. But meeting people down in the Petersburg area, there's so many that have said, I, I heard this story as a bedtime story as a child, and then I sort of forgot about it. So they were just thrilled that somebody had actually, you know, put it all down. Um, so if anybody knows Steven Spielberg, um, <laughs> I would definitely pick up his phone call on the first ring because it would make a, make a great movie. That's for sure. So she never received any kind of accolades during her time because it sounded no, like her yes. family just kind of passed on. What yeah, was going no, on. nothing. It was kind of all just like word of mouth. Um, and I think part of it is that the house stayed in her, within the family. So the house was occupied during the Civil War mm -hmm. by the Union Army for months. And then unfortunately in 1920, it burned down. And there was a, apparently there was a still in there during prohibition that caught fire. So they rebuilt the house or a, a much smaller house over about, you know, a thousand feet away. So you can mm -hmm. see where the tunnel is uh, grown over with ivy where she, um, you so know, the tunnel still out. exists. So the tunnel's there, and I've met people too that said they played in it as children. Whoa. Isn't that, it's so cool. I mean, just That's amazing. amazing. But now it's covered in poison ivy, and I think it's oh. kind of all kind of, um, you know, kind of uh, fallen apart. But it would be really neat to have it excavated and, um, and all that. So, yeah. so that I think part of the reason, though, that the story didn't get out is it the family was on the premises for you know, kept the house. So it never became like a national historic landmark or anything like mm -hmm. that. Um, but yeah, it is very strange that it really never, you know, that it's, it's out there in these little tidbits, but it never really got out there. Um, so it, the house that they rebuilt, uh, it still exists. Yeah. People live in it. Is it like a landmark? Yes. Yeah. It's, it? um, it is there and they use as much of the original materials as they could. Oh, wow. So, um, they, it actually was just auctioned off and someone now it's fine. Now it's the first time that it's been out of the family, but I stopped by there and, and I, I, they had, there were all these workmen in there and they had gutted it. And I thought, I said, what, what happened to all the, you know, oh, no. the beams and everything that said, Oh, well they, they took them all out and we're, you know, redoing, you know, basically the basic walls and then we're going to put all that back in. So, um, but yeah, there's no like historic landmark, anything there. There's nothing. But when you go to Petersburg, the, the bowling name is everywhere. It's like Bolingbrook Street, Bolingbrook, you know, and um, the um, Blanford Cemetery, which is this huge Civil War. Um, it's, it's the largest cemetery in Virginia after Arlington. And so it's, there's even a, right at the very front of it, it's the, the bowling mausoleum is right at the very front of it. So, um, um, but yeah, it, it's baffling of, of really why the story never got out. And all I can think is that maybe her family, you know, they were very well to do and it wasn't ladylike. So that was kind of one of the things that I had to wrestle with of how do I explain this in the novel of why it never, you know, why her, her story never really was revealed to the world. I find that strange as well. Uh, Philomena had just mentioned, had you ever heard of Sybil Luddington, who is kind yes. of who I kind of associated Susanna with exactly. of being a very yeah, young female, yeah. young writer. And again, because they are seen as just women, so they're not smart enough to kind of pick mm -hmm. up on these things and 
do what Paul Revere did, but ever so slightly better because nobody yeah. was ever arrested. Always <laughs> an important part to mention. There's just, there's so many female, young female writers mm -hmm. that are so overlooked. So it's so nice to be able to kind of put them on platforms now and talk about them. It is. It's amazing. I mean, it, it's great for these young girls to know that there were, that these aren't made up people. These are real people who did this. Yeah, definitely representation. So it's very interesting. It's neat too to, to get such a fuller understanding of what the Revolutionary War was like. Because yeah. like someone with this pandemic is people say, oh, we're all in this together. And, and someone mentioned to me, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats. And that's what I realized a lot about the American Revolution is it affected everyone immensely, but affected people in such different ways. And, right. You know, just I just hadn't really thought about you know, basically the trickle down effect on home life and and even these soldiers that were injured if they lost a leg during the war and then they came home it's they're useless they can't ride a horse they can't farm they can't do anything and yeah. it's just like, oh my gosh it's just it's just amazing but it's just, it just gives you such a bigger appreciation I think when you learn more about the different perspectives and even the perspectives of slaves of like here they are fighting for freedom and we're slaves and um you know but also really I, when i started researching all of that of realizing that back then it was illegal to free your slaves in all of the colonies so even if a slave managed to run away or there was really nowhere for them to go and um just it's just mind-boggling because I, you know, I always kind of think of the Underground Railroad, and it's like, well, there was no Underground Railroad. There was, there was nowhere. There was yeah. no safety net for them. And then the British told them, oh, come join us, and we'll take care of you at the end of the war when we win. And all these people joined, and um, you know, of course, they were like, you know, made to scavenge for all the food. They were the last to eat. They were, you know, so many of them died, got smallpox, and even at um, the Battle of Yorktown, so many of them had smallpox that Cornwallis basically locked them out and left them to die because he couldn't afford for his troops to get it. But I mean, it's just heartbreaking. They're suffering. Yeah. yeah. Kathy Thompson asked a little bit earlier in the presentation, is the halfway house still there and open to the public? Excellent question. I'm glad, very glad you asked that. Um, it is indeed. And um, they have the best crab cake I have ever had. Um, it's closed <laughs> right now with the pandemic, but they are uh, in the, in the rolls are amazing, but yeah, it's still there. They have the same kitchen out back and it's, um, and then they, you know, had the restaurant and then they have rooms upstairs that, you know, you can use for gatherings that they used to have like town meetings in, but um, it's amazing. And I've actually gotten to be good friends with the owners there, but um, yeah, it's, a, it's amazing. It's a lovely, lovely place. I Definitely love colonial the, homes the become restaurants. It's one if I land, two if I see is old, is Bird's old carriage house. Oh, neat. Very good liquor. Uh -huh. Very good liquor selection. But I like when that happens. You feel yes, very historic. Yes. <laughs> um, See. Melissa Morales asked, is there a place or a trail in Virginia, in Virginia to trace Susanna's steps or ride? Or is that something you're working on? I actually do. I can, um, gosh, I'm trying to think I could post that somehow. I do have a map of what her route was on the, um, you know, on the, on the, um, you know, um, what her route was. But then it was funny, just with history, the more you keep digging and digging, 
because then when I met the owner of the halfway house, he said, well, I was, I was told that this, that the halfway house was actually moved from somewhere else. And uh, so I, and, and it probably would have been a little bit closer, but they, you know, just amazing back then to be able to move a building. But, um, but yeah, I do have that. So I can, I'm trying to think, I, I can post that somehow or send it to you. I have the map of her route, um, oh. which is now, you know, like route one and, um, you know, a major highway. Yeah. Um, awesome. But um, yeah, it is, it is amazing, really just mind boggling. Because even when she, she canoed across the river, she couldn't canoe directly across because the other side was marshland. So she had to go down river and then, um, land and then so basically when she came back at four in the morning she had to paddle up river to get home so just the i can't imagine her exhaustion it was for a cause yes yes your endorphins kick in and you just go yes <laughs> yep. uh kevin breen asked which american and british leader do you think made the most impact on the war Gosh, I, not to put American you on the leader? spot. No pressure. Huh? No pressure. Which, um, American or British? Yes. Um, Let's double check. Gosh, that's a good question. Um, Which American and British? American and British. Ah. Uh, um, well, one of my favorite um, favorite generals from the revolution is. Um, Nathaniel Green, he's known as the fighting Quaker. Mm -hmm. And he, because Quakers didn't believe in war, but he believed in the cause and all that. And um, he's the one that, that um, organized the whole Battle of Guilford Courthouse and all that. But he was amazing. And he, um, you know, basically earned his way up to become one of, uh, one of um, Washington's favorite generals. And um, I just really admire his spunk and his um, tenacity because he was kind of like Lafayette where he would just trigger these little battles and you know he just would kind of keep morale up and keep everybody moving and keep everybody going. And then finally at Guilford Courthouse, it was like time for a showdown, but, um, but um, an incredible man. I'm trying to think um, the most effect on the, for the British, um, well, I'd, I'd have to say Cornwallis because General Clinton was actually sort of a weak general. He really was not, and that's what frustrated Cornwallis about him, is that he really wasn't a super aggressive leader at all. So um, Cornwallis really was, you know, he had the fire in his belly for sure, of really taking land and you know, wanting to put these rebels in their place. But the irony is he actually, when he was in the um, House of Commons, he had voted against going to war. But, um, but once he was in it, man, he, he was all for it. But, um, but that's, that's a very good question. I'll have to think some more about that. And, you know, Tarleton was just, I mean, gosh, what a, what a, what a character. nasty man. He was a um, character. That's what you have to say when you have other choice words. You say, yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Well, there were a bunch of Virginians surrendering on their knees at the Battle of Waxhaws in South Carolina and killed them all. It's a character. Yeah, he's a character. <laughs> really nice way of saying things. Yes. <laughs> 
All right. Well, I think that is all the time we have for this evening. Thank you, Mary, for moderating. And thank you, Libby, for all of your great answers for these great questions. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm glad you were able to make the switch to a virtual program so we didn't have to miss out on your talk. Oh, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been an honor. All right. Um, so I saw some questions about this. Um, just so you know, if you missed any part of a lecture, if you want to share it with people, a recording will be available on the museum's website later in the week uh, if you registered. You should get an email about that as well. Uh, thank you for joining us. And thank you to those of you who have donated. Your donations help us keep our mission alive and help us keep creating these programs, whether they're virtual or eventually in person again. Um, and if you are interested in making a donation, you can find those links on our website, francistavernmuseum.org. And any amount is greatly appreciated and helps us keep revolutionary history alive. Uh, once again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Libby, for being with us. Thank you, Mary, for your assistance. Have a wonderful rest of your evening, and we hope to see you all at our next virtual program.